Happy Christmas. How's your day so far? I am blessed to have the wife that I have. Um, she made us a big breakfast this morning, and then we've got a big dinner uh, this afternoon. Um, I don't know about many of you, but Kathy and I come from a very similar upbringing, similar background. Uh, we're both from uh, Michigan. We're both uh, raised in uh, Restoration Movement churches. But even beyond that, we both have very similar, how should I say, uh, like household rules that we grew up with, things that are just, this is how it's supposed to be, all right? Um, and one of those things is, if there's specialty food bought in the house, you don't touch it. That's for something special that's not for you to touch. And uh, uh, I have gotten myself in trouble a couple of times by not abiding by that rule. Now, there was one part, one time when uh, fairly recently, like just a month ago, where now two months ago, Kathy said to me, hey, why didn't you eat what's, whatever it is that was in the fridge? She says, this is, this has gone bad now. I need to throw it out. I said, well, you didn't tell me I could eat that. And she's like, well, of course you can eat it. I'm like, hey, I've gotten in trouble before by eating stuff that I'm not, you know, it's not regular food that's in the fridge. And so I just don't touch it unless I'm told. So she said, okay, we're rescinding that rule. If it's out there, you can eat it. The next day, I got into something and she was like, why did you? And then she just stopped and went, never mind. <laughs> when she brought home a bunch of stuff that she was getting for Christmas dinner, she said, Okay, anything that you see in our cupboards or on our shelves that's not normal-looking food, please leave that alone. That's for Christmas. I'm like, all right, I can abide by that, no problem. Well, you know, there's a loophole to that rule. And last night I came over a little peckish in the evening, and I just wanted some, some crackers with, like, jam on it, and I knew that there were some very, very specialty crackers out there. And I went out and I looked. And one of those cracker boxes, somebody had already opened. And that, my friends, is a universal acceptance. If it's already open, it's fair game. I can just have at it, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It's like a rule. So I'm like, oh, good, these are the best crackers on earth. And I open up the box, and all of the little individual packets were still sealed. And I had stale saltines with my jam. <laughs> anyway, it is an honor to be able to preach about Christmas on Christmas Day. It is just something that's special. I mean, when Christmas falls on like a Thursday or a Friday, when does a preacher, when, when is a preacher supposed to preach about Christmas? Do you preach the week before when it's like five days before Christmas? Or do you wait until like two days after Christmas? Believe it or not, I've had this discussion with other preachers. So when it falls right on Christmas Day, that's a no-brainer. I preach about Christmas on Christmas. Having Christmas fall right on Sunday, it happens, as you might have guessed, on average once every seven years. But it's not 
once every seven years, usually because leap year gets in there and throws it a curveball. And it actually varies from every five years up to as far out as every 11 years. It can be 11 years apart when Christmas falls on, 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 the, on Sunday. Last time was 2016, which was six years ago. And then you run, run into this debate as to whether or not to have church on Christmas. And to me, this isn't even a question. It's like, why would we bother people with worshiping God on the day that we actually celebrate his coming into this world? Ah, just don't trouble people. Let them jump right into the presence. Then it brings up the question, well, when, why, and by whom was the decision made to say that Christmas was on December 25th Anyway, where does that come from? The technical answer is that the leaders of the church got together and decided it in 273. That's how far back it goes that Christmas was put on December 25th. And yes, I don't deny, they picked that day because there were two, in Northern Europe where Christianity was spreading, there were two pagan holidays that were held on December 25th and they wanted to kind of push those out and, and have these newly Christianized, um, formerly pagan Northern Europeans start worshiping Christ on that day. And I don't have a problem with that. I also like having a really wonderful festival, like celebrating the birth of Christ at virtually the darkest point of the year. The other day, on the 21st, was the darkest part of the year. And if you think it's bad here, where I grew up, on December 21st, it's usually dark. And I mean dark at 4.30 in the afternoon at this point of the year. So having a big party, having a festivity, that's not a bad thing. Jerry, could I get you to go shut this door for me, please? Appreciate that. No matter what our reasons are for the month or day that we choose for celebrating Christ's birth, what should be the most important thing is that it's a remembrance of the incarnation of God. We can gather together and celebrate with family and friends, open presents, give to the needy, have church services, go caroling to our neighbors, or have a nice feast, any of these things. But we must always remember that the reason for this season is that Christ came as was prophesied. Now, while this event does, it somewhat seems to just appear out of nowhere, almost at the very beginning of the New Testament, without a whole lot of explanation as to what it is, you know, for us people, us descendants of those Northern European uh, pagans, most of us are, we have to keep in mind that this wasn't something that just popped out of nowhere for the people to which it happened. They had been looking for this for thousands and thousands of years. Dating back, no one really knows how long 
to the very beginning of mankind. When we first made a mess of things after God had blessed us in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 gives that first prophecy that there would be a Messiah that would come for us. He says, uh, after, they, after they would been uh, fallen and they're being put out of the garden, God says in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was the first time that we had ever been given the promise of a coming Messiah, the Savior whom we were all in need of ever since that fateful day when all of mankind fell into the tendency to choose the evil over the good. It is the light, in the light of these prophecies, going back to the beginning of recorded history, that we should be looking at one last prophecy about the coming of the Savior the one who would take away the guilt of the world. An announcement that was made as usual, as many times prophecies were, through an angel, a word that literally means messenger. And this prophecy was given to an individual, a young woman. And it was about a very unexpected event. Her becoming the mother of the Messiah, the Christ the Son of God. Turn with me in your Bibles or follow along overhead in Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, is, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's somewhat interesting, at least to me, 
that what she was troubled over was not the presence of the angel. That's normal throughout Scripture. An angel appears and people are terrified. We joked about this on Wednesday night because if you look up what seraphim and cherubim look like in the Old Testament, those are some terrifying dudes, man. They do not look normal. If you put one of those on the top of your Christmas tree, people would think you were doing something weird. In most places where an angel appears... The first thing that usually comes out of their mouth is, do not be afraid. And while he does say this to her, it's in the context of her being troubled about his greeting. The words translated greatly troubled is literally greatly agitated. He had this young woman agitated by his greeting to her. He comes out of nowhere and says something she's not used to hearing. The text also makes it clear that she was trying to discern what kind of greeting this is. Clearly, it was nothing like anything she'd ever heard. That's probably why she was agitated. What exactly is going on here? I can imagine her thinking. When the angel makes it clear what's going on here, she is still rationally thinking about what has been said to her in accordance with the reality of her life. She's like, yeah, that, that's not, that doesn't work. Mary is a thinking, rational, reasoning person. And she wants to know the details of this extremely unusual event in which she finds herself. Because what he is saying doesn't line up with reality. She is clearly very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures because she isn't confounded by the explanation of who and what this child is all about. When he tells her about the child, the son of God, she isn't like, whoa, wait, what are you talking about? She knows what he's talking about. She understands the Old Testament prophecies. When the angel says that he will be called the son of the most high and that he will reign over his father David's throne and kingdom, which will never end, she isn't perplexed. She doesn't say, I don't get what you're saying. I don't even understand what that means. She knew what it meant. She and her people had been waiting for almost 2,000 years since the first prophecies were written down and given to them. In that situation, completely understanding what this is referring to, she gives her consent. She bows her entire life before the will of God the Father, completely understanding what is being said to her. And this brings us to the actual event. The prophecies are over. It was the time for them to come to pass. And they did so with the arrival of a sweet little baby who was placed in a manger in an insignificant farming town, in an insignificant backwater province of the Roman Empire. This was Nowheresville. 
the incarnation event in the Gospel of Matthew is written from the perspective of Joseph. It was written for Jewish people to read, and they would have understood many of the things that are put in Matthew, a fellow Jew, what he writes, but which Luke doesn't repeat. If you read the account in Matthew, he talks about a lot of prophecies. He talks about a lot of Old Testament stuff because he's a Jew writing for Jews. Luke doesn't say these things. I apologize for this dumb thing. I think my suit is screwing it up. Luke is written by a Gentile, and it's written for Gentiles to read. And Luke writes it with Mary as his primary source. If you think about this, Luke didn't even come around to being a Christian until decades later. He didn't know this stuff firsthand. He investigated. He went and looked. He went and asked. And Mary was his primary source for all of this information that he's giving about the nativity. So he tells the story from her perspective. Turn to Luke chapter 7, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all who went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid them in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Anyone in the Western world who has seen a big nativity like the one we have down at Modder Park, We have this concept in our minds about the birth of Jesus. They were traveling to be registered so that they could be more accurately taxed. Thank you, government. And it happens that the time for the baby's arrival comes. Perhaps it's a little bit earlier than they had expected due to being jostled around during the journey, riding on a donkey, or perhaps even walking the three-day walk on rough roads from their home to where they were. No arrangements have yet been made. And they don't even have a proper place for the baby to be born. There's no clean, comfortable bed in their house. No midwife present, not even a strange bed in an inn where there could at least be some basic comforts. No, the creator of the universe and savior of mankind is born outside. In the scripture, there's no mention of a stable, only the manger, which could have been in a stable, Or it could have been just behind the inn for the animals to eat out of. But let's assume there was a stable. 
It likely wouldn't have been some nice, clean, wooden, barn-like structure that you and I would imagine. That is something from our culture that our minds have put back into it. You know, I lived on a farm for a few years, and we had an old wooden, uh, century-old barn. And our, our calves lived in a part of this barn where uh, it was a room down on the, on the ground level, and then hay was stacked up above it, and hay was all around it. And I would go in there when it was 20 below zero outside, and it would be pretty nice. I mean, I'd have to take off my coat in there. It was warm. It's decent. We put straw out and hay out all the time. Not terrible place for little baby animals. That's not what they had. In those days, if they were in a stable, the stable would likely have been made out of rock or wattle. You know, interwoven sticks where they drive sticks into the ground and then they just put sticks in this way. And what they would do to keep the wind out, to keep it so that it was at least a, a structure that would give some shelter, is they would put daub in between the cracks of the rocks or in the woven branches that are there to make the wall. Do you know what daub is? It is equal parts mud and poop with straw mixed into it. And they take this and by hand they pack it into the walls and then they let it dry. Don't you think that's just a delightful place where you would want to be to have a baby born? Now I'm going to be generous and I'm going to say that that Joseph was probably a pretty decent guy and he chased the animals out of a corner and put down some fresh straw so at least there was a clean, dry place for Mary to lay down and have her child. But that's it. Maybe, if they were lucky, there was a single lamp, oil lamp, with a wick on it that gives about as much light as two or three candles that's it. Those are the provisions under, worth, under which she's giving birth to the Savior of the world. God became man. From the throne of heaven to an outbuilding made partially out of manure in the backyard of an inn. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round him, them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. No line of dignitaries to greet the newly arrived king. No proclamation made by a herald to all the people of the land informing them of their new sovereign. No genuflecting of nobles and princes. No official documents sent far and wide to empires across the globe and provinces making known the importance of this event. But the most wonderful words imaginable to a people who have longed for centuries for the coming of the promised Messiah, declared by a leader of a heavenly host, Behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For all people, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike would now have opportunity to come before God the Father. Not because they were perfect. Not because they offered the correct sacrifices at the correct times. Not because they were ritually clean or born of the right lineage. But because God lowered himself and became man, that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, pay the atonement for our trespasses, so that if we accept him, forgiveness through grace might be ours, and with it, eternal life. In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our 
sins. Christ's incarnation has an eternal relevance to us. It's only through God becoming man that we can go to be with God. Therefore, our celebration of it should be eternal. Everyone who has enjoyed this salvation, this salvation that he brought, should celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus, not just on the 25th of December, but every single day of your life. Because it is through Jesus Christ being born of a virgin and laid in a manger as a tiny little baby that he came and grew into a man who died on a cross so that you and I may live in eternity. Let's pray. Father God, We love you and we praise you. We thank you for everything you've been done for us that that, that you came to this world to do. Thank you, Lord, for the teachings that you gave us. Thank you for the instruction on how you expect us to live our lives. But thank you most, Lord, for giving of yourself, dying in our place, that we may live a new life. In Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anyone here who has not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, given yourself to Him, confessed His name, repented of your sins, and been immersed into Christ, I encourage you to do so today. Please stand as we sing.